I'm sure that most of you have come across the Amish community in America. They're a community of people who live in a bit of a technological time warp. They dress in very old-fashioned clothes made by hand. They will have nothing at all to do with technology, even to the extent that they wear buttons, not zips, on their trousers. They travel around in horse-driven carts, not cars. They have gas lamps to light their home, not electricity. And one day, a young lad and his father from this uh, Amish community needed to go into the big city. And they found themselves inside a, de a department store. They were amazed by the number of items for sale and the colours. And the thing that intrigued them more than anything else was a shiny silver door at the corner of the room. It intrigued them. It, it opened every now and again, and as it did, it went ping. <laughs> and the door opened sideways, and people got into this little silver room. And then the doors closed, and the lights came on. And it was one, two, three, four. This really was amazing. What could it be? So they went to have a closer look. A very old lady pressed the button. She waited for a while and the doors opened with a ping. She walked into this silver room. The doors closed and the lights came on. One, two, three, four. The lights came on again. Four, three, two, one. But now they were even more amazed because the little old lady had gone. And out of this little silver room came an absolutely gorgeous, blonde, 25-year-old. <laughs> well, the father and son were absolutely gobsmacked. Father turns to son and says, Son, quick, go and get your mother. <laughs> what a transformation. And transformation is the word that I would use to describe what happened to the disciples on Easter Sunday morning following the events of that week and especially to a disciple named Peter sometimes called Simon Peter and this week I was reading the story of Easter Sunday from the Gospel of Mark as probably many of you know there are four Gospels in the New Testament Matthew Mark Luke and John and in the context of what I was reading, Mary Magdalene, one of the followers of Jesus with other friends, went to the tomb early on the Sunday morning before sunrise. And they were dumbfounded in getting there that the stone that had been placed there had now been rolled away. And they entered the tomb and instead of seeing a corpse, they were confronted by an angel. And the angel told them not to be alarmed that the Jesus who was crucified has now risen from the dead. And the angel says this, and it's recorded for us in Mark chapter 16, verse 7, and we put the verse, the verse up on screen for you. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he, Jesus, is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And as I read that passage this morning, there are two words from that verse that just jumped out to me. And it's the words, and Peter. In the contemporary English version of the Bible, it says, especially Peter. So why on earth does the angel say this? Why was Peter singled out? Surely 
Go tell the disciples would have been sufficient because Peter was one of the disciples, but the angel didn't just stop there. Go and tell the disciples and Peter. Now, for any of you who have read the New Testament, Peter is a very interesting character, fascinating man. He was impetuous and impulsive and spontaneous and hot-headed and big-hearted and lovable and larger than life. But he was also very fallible and frail. Uh, Peter suffered from foot and mouth disease. Every time he opened his mouth, he put his foot in it. <laughs> I know a few people like that, but we won't go there. He always spoke before he put his brain in gear. And the biggest error of judgment, I think, was claiming that he was prepared to die for Jesus. It may be that all the other disciples, that they would have turned their backs and walked the other way, but he was saying, I, I, I'm, I've got your back, Jesus. I'm the one who is going to be with you through to the end. I'm the courageous one. They may deny you, but I won't. I'll be with you all the way through. And then Jesus told him that one, that actually what he would do would be to deny Jesus three times. And he would remember this by a cockerel crowing. And that happened just as Jesus said it would. And the story is well known. Peter denied Jesus and then broke his heart over what he had done to his friend and master. For some days, Peter lived in the doldrums of despair, unable to cope with his own cowardice, shamefaced, disgraced. How could he have denied his friend Jesus and his master in the way that he did? And the first thing, and I find this a really interesting detail, is that those words, and Peter, is only found in one of the four Gospels in Mark's Gospel. Matthew records the angel instructing the women to go quickly and tell the disciples, but there is simply no mention of Peter. Matthew doesn't seem to think that this detail is important to put in his story. Luke and John, well, they don't even mention that at all. They totally omit the angel's instruction to Mary to go to the disciples. So why? Why? Why does the Gospel of Mark include this little detail of the angel saying, go and tell the disciples and Peter, or especially Peter? Well, some of the earliest Christians who lived within a generation of the disciples believed that Mark, or John Mark as he was known in the New Testament, actually wrote down the teaching of Peter. And somehow, I can get my head around this idea that Peter was there, perhaps by a campfire, telling all the Jesus stories to his listeners. And they were holding on to every word. They were gripped, they were absorbed, they were spellbound. And I can imagine Peter just telling these stories of how he had let his Lord down. How he was acting all big and courageous, and yet when it came to the crunch, he denied Jesus even before a young girl. And then the cock crowed, just as Jesus said it would. And then he would have told his, his listeners how he had blown it. There was no way back now. And then in the storytelling, he gets to that point of the events of Easter Sunday. And he tells how the women had gone early to the tomb with spices. And how the tombstone had been rolled away. 
and how they found the tomb empty and how they encountered the angel. And I can imagine when he gets to this point, and I say imagine because we're not actually told this, I'm just reading between the lines of what happened. And I think it's always good to use your imagination a little bit when you're reading the Bible. And we, he gets to this point and he just lowers his voice and the tone changes. And he gets all serious. And there's a dramatic pause. And then he says, and the angel said to Mary and the others, go, tell the disciples. And then as Peter is telling this story, he probably tilts his head back and laughs out loud with great delight and wonderment and then points to himself. Tell the others and Peter. You see, Mark, who was among the listeners, wrote down these amazing stories for posterity, for future generations to know about these things. And I would say thank you, Mark. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for giving us these details. I think we would be so much poorer without them. But whenever I read Mark's gospel in the New Testament, I see Peter's fingerprints on every page. One of Mark's favorite words is the word immediately which for anybody who has read anything about Peter, that sounds exactly like him. Impetuous. Always had to do things immediately. He was a little bit, you know, I think he probably had ADHD or something. He was hyperactive. He was larger than life. Impetuous. But whilst this detail and Peter might not have been important to the other gospel writers, to Matthew, to Luke and John, it was so important to Peter and you see, what is happening here is this. Peter, after his denial, he was being brought in from the cold. He was give, being given here another chance by Jesus. None of the disciples covered themselves in glory on that Good Friday. They all scattered. They all fled. None of them had the courage to admit that they were a follower of Jesus. They all ran away. But it could be argued that Peter's sin was even greater than the others because he was the one who boasted, I've got your back. I'm the one who's going to be with you to the very end, even though the others might deny you. And those two words, and Peter, I believe are the beginning of his reinstatement, the beginning of that restoration. He was probably so overwhelmed by the words of the angel that he should have special attention he just keep, kept on talking about it. And Mark probably heard it so many times, thought, oh, I better put this down in writing in his gospel. Peter thought that there was no way back. No forgiveness. No second chance. Maybe for the others, they could have received forgiveness, but not for him. And those words, and Peter, given by the angel, made all the difference. Now many of us know the rest of the story. We know how Jesus himself met with Peter on the beach and reinstated him, offered him forgiveness and a new start and a way back into the fold. We know that Peter actually became the rock upon which the church would built as Jesus predicted. Early Christian tradition tells us that Peter never denied Jesus again. In fact, Peter was crucified as Jesus was crucified. But the one thing that he uh, was not prepared to do 
was to be crucified exactly as Jesus was crucified, and he wanted to be crucified upside down. But what do these two words and Peter mean for us today? What is the message? Well, the message is very simple, and it's very wonderful. The inclusion of these two words demonstrates that God is a God of second chances. Those words tell me that God's grace reaches down to the worst of reprobates, that no one is beyond the reach of God. No one has sunk so deeply and sinned so greatly that they are beyond God's love. Maybe that you're a person who has said of yourself, it's been really interesting hearing those stories this morning, but God could never change me. I'm beyond saving. I tell you what, I wish I'd had a fiver for every time I've heard someone say that. If you really knew what I was like, really like, then you would know that God has nothing at all to do with me. I could never know him being a part of my life. And my guess is that some of you in your lives might look at failures and regrets in years gone by. Maybe that some other people have written you off and they have spoken of you in very cruel terms. They have said that you're a waste of space, that you're a loser, that you could never change. And sometimes you look back on your own life and you just feel overwhelmed, utterly overwhelmed by guilt, by fear, by shame, just like Peter. And Peter, two small words, so easily missed, yet those words powerfully demonstrate the way not only that God views Peter, but the way that God views every human being, every one of us here in this church today. Peter and his disciples were transformed men. And I would say that the transformation in Peter and the other disciples was one of the great evidences of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These men were so fearful and yet they were transformed into people who were willing to lay down their lives for the message that Jesus had risen from the grave. And many of them did. And sometimes people will die, you see, for what they believe to be true, but even if they're wrong. But the idea that someone would die in proclaiming something that they themselves knew to be false is an absolute nonsense. And these disciples, they were prepared to lay down their lives, and they did, for the message that they went around telling everybody, Jesus is risen from the dead. Some of you might know the name Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was the hatchet man in President Richard Nixon's uh, administration. Colson was a man with an absolutely brilliant mind, but he was a corrupt man. He was, he was a really nasty piece of work. He was referred to as President Nixon's hard man, an evil genius in an evil administration. He was sent to prison for his part in the infamous Watergate scandal. But later, Chuck Colson became a Christian and he was the founder of the Prison Fellowship International which presents the gospel to prisoners in over 120 countries around the world. And this is what he once wrote. We'll put it up on screen for you as well. 
I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it were not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep the lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. And as a Christian, I would admit to you that I have all my eggs in one basket. If Christ was not risen from the dead, then all of our singing and excitement and shouting and all the rest this morning is sheer nonsense because we have nothing to say or sing or shout about. If there is no resurrection, then those Christians who have been martyred for their faith down through the last 2,000 years are poor, deluded fools. Those who are being baptised this morning, having given testimony that Jesus has changed their lives, if Christ has not risen, what you have heard is bunkum. It's nonsense. Don't listen to them. Because it's rubbish. If there is no resurrection, then please, 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 and I'm serious on this, I really am serious on this. If there is no resurrection, then please don't bother with Christianity. It's a waste of time. Go and do something useful with your lives. But if it's true, and I believe passionately, passionately that this is true, it's not some make-believe, but this is based on historical fact then it changes everything. It means that, first of all, Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of God. It means that Jesus has the power to wipe the slate clean for me and forgive my sin. It means that Jesus has the power to enable me to live a life of purpose and meaning and to bring freedom. It also means that one day, when my life is over, it's not over. For there is awaiting me a God who has loved me and has given his son for me. I'm nearly done. As with Peter, God loves you so, so much. He loves you so much that he doesn't want you to remain in your despair or guilt, or shame. He desires to bring restoration and forgiveness and freedom, a clean slate, a new start. He has a better future for you, better than anything that you could ever imagine. But God doesn't force his way into our lives. He waits to be invited in. And in a sense, he invites you to invite him in. And as we do that sincerely, we can know his peace, his joy, his presence.
and so much more. I'm going to pray. And as I pray, I'm just going to pray a very simple prayer. It may be that you're a person who has no idea how really you can do this. And you might find the words helpful to invite Jesus into your life this morning. And I want you, if you feel that, yes, you want to put your hand in his hand, that you want to journey with Jesus through life. Don't want you to pray it out loud, I just want you to pray it quietly. But sincerely, because this is just between you and God. Okay, this is the prayer. Dear God, I thank you for loving me. I thank you that you sent your son into this world. He taught us, he sat where we sit. He died upon a cross. That forgiveness of my sins could be complete. But he did not remain dead. Lord, I thank you that on the third day, on Resurrection Sunday, he rose from the dead. And I thank you because of that, I can trust in you that you, to, you can forgive my sin, that you can enable me to live a life which is pleasing to you, and that one day I too will conquer death. I thank you, dear God, for your love for me. And I just pray today that you will come into my life. Help me with your grace to live for you, to serve you, and to bring honour to your name. Amen.